since April 6th and 7th, um, this is the second hardest. Um, April 6th and 7th was the hardest. For me, this is the second hardest because I had to face Mr. Sidhu. I had to had to speak to him, um, so that was harder for me. I feel like whatever the sentence is, we're going to be disappointed. If it were 14 years, we're going to be disappointed. I think the only thing that would leave us not disappointed would be something new, something different, something that set set precedent, and that's. It's a tough thing for a judge to do. That is the voice of uh, former NHL player Chris Joseph, whose son Jackson was killed on that bus. You know, having to listen to over 90 victim impact statements read out in the Humboldt sentencing. And um, they're heartbreaking. And uh, we will start hearing the victim impact statements from those impacted by the horrific acts carried out by Bruce MacArthur. Those statements will be carefully crafted and then delivered um, by those who have been impacted by what he did. Uh, and victim impact statements have a strict criteria. They are designed uh, for victims to get some closure, you know, to speak directly to that person who has destroyed their life. But a lot of people, I think, believe that they don't have an impact on sentencing. You know, for instance, with the MacArthur case, you know, people will say, was a deal made on sentencing? Was it discussed beforehand in order to get the eight guilty pleas? What do the victim impact statements have in sentencing? Well, if a judge is doing their job, they certainly do carry more influence than we might think. Honorable Justice Russell Otter is now a retired provincial court judge. You don't get judges who speak out often. So when I get a chance to talk to one, I grab it. He joins us now. Justice Otter, I know that there's a lot of conversations about the victim impact statement because we're in the middle of two cases that are in the midst of hearing them. We'll have the Humboldt case, which just wrapped up with its proceedings today. And then, of course, on Monday, we start the MacArthur um, um, uh, part of this. And a lot of people say, why have them if, in fact, they don't influence the outcome? Do they? Well, first of all, they're required in law. As since the summer of 2015, the government indicated that all victims have a right to present a victim impact statement before it was voluntary. But even before, and particularly now, it it is a significant component and a factor, together with all the other factors that a judge must consider before he or she imposes sentence. Right. In the MacArthur case, and, and I'm speculating a little bit, which I know just uh, judges don't tend to like, but, um, you know, they got MacArthur to plead out to eight, uh, eight counts of first degree, which is unique in itself. But I have to think that behind the scenes, there may have been some kind of agreement negotiated on sentencing. And we certainly don't know what they'll come up with. But I think a lot of people wonder, well, if that's the kind of thing that goes on with the deal making, why would we need, you know, the people to go through the process of, of having a victim impact statement? Uh, first of all, any agreement behind the scenes is not binding on the judge. Right. Okay. So there's, there, there's still an opening in there. But secondly, uh, even if they have, for example, in other cases where they have what's called a joint submission where both parties agree, which for the most part has a significant impact, uh, the judge sort of has to abide by it, there's still an opportunity for the victim impact statement uh, to be presented so the parties can participate in the process express their feelings and the impact on them and the community. So it's still there. Right. And so this notion that they don't play an influence is simply not true. No, no. And furthermore, the victims, in this case, the families of the deceased, would uh, get an opportunity to participate in the process, which they otherwise wouldn't. 
Right, uh, which is so often the case. You know, the, the victims of these things, of these uh, situations, often are just quietly in a corner listening to uh, all the evidence and testimony. And, of course, the, because the system is built around the accused, so this is really their opportunity to get a chance to have their say. How important, though, I mean, you're in a unique position because we can finally get a bit of a behind-the-scenes look through your eyes. As a judge, um, did you ever find yourself just listening to the words of someone who has been through ultimate loss or heartbreak. I mean, did it change your mind to go one way or another? Well, first of all, my mind's not made up. And I mean, many judges will say that until we've heard all the evidence. The victim impact part of the sentencing process usually precedes the sentencing, which is the submissions of counsel, uh, the application of law, and the other principles. So it's always there, and it's in the back of our minds when we do it. It, uh, the one thing that should be said, it, it doesn't overwhelm all the other factors, but it is and must be taken into account. Yeah, I wouldn't want people to kind of listen to this and walk away and say, well, gee, nothing, you know, there's no matter to this, um, because they're really quite powerful when you see someone deliver one of these things, even though they're very, um, you know, strict in, in what can be said and what can't be said. They, I mean, there's a framework to them, but they are a very important uh, part of the proceedings. Yeah, but also importantly, the defendant hears the impact that his crime or offense has had on the victim or victims in a particular case. If, in fact, um, you know, and I think there's a conversation to be had given the last few months where we've heard uh, about cases with Terry Lynn McClintock or Elizabeth Wetloff or, or even, um, you know, other people getting kind of lesser, um, you know, confinement, uh, whether they're in a healing lodge or they go into a, a medium security or they're downgraded into a better facility. I think a lot of people have started the conversation about, you know, what's in it for the victims? What rights do they actually have in this system? Do you believe that there needs to be any kind of changes to get more? More of a balance. Um, I, I don't know what you would mean by more of a balance. Well, without without skewing and while still uh, preserving the integrity of protecting the rights of the accused, do we need to get back uh, to doing more and making sure that victims have more supports? Let's say. Oh yeah, I mean that's been a trend for the last. 10, 15 years, and the previous the Harper government, for example, uh, put a lot of emphasis on that by enshrining it in the law, the victim impact statement. So it ensures that they do participate and get full presentation of it. The unique thing about it is the sentencing victim impact statement comes in the sentencing process. The trial is over. There's been a determination of guilt. They're dealing with sentencing itself. So, and the people, they take the stand and they deliver their victim impact statement in any whatever format they have, but they're not subject to the rigors of a trial. That is, examination achieved, cross-examination, and re-examination. They get there, and they get the full attention of the court and the parties to what they have to say. Let me ask you this, because I'm always curious about this. I mean, you know, in the United States, we have a much different system, but when they get up and read a victim impact statement, I mean, they, they really let her go. We are much more um, refined here in Canada. I mean, it's very controlled what someone can say. Why is there such a limit on what, what someone can say to the accused or the convicted in this case? Well, <clears throat> I can tell you by experience, not too much is not said. There are some restrictions because of the jurisprudence. Like, for example, you know, know, they can't dictate what the outcome is going to be, or they can't misrepresent the facts. But they're given full amplitude in saying whatever they want in whatever fashion they wish to do it. And as I think, as you can see from the the Melford case, that there's a huge, there's a wide range of reactions from balanced to highly emotional. uh, And they're they're not held back. There's no venting. 
and in terms of the impact on the judge, this judge still has to consider them in an objective and dispassionate fashion, along with all the other components, and they do. Do you, I mean, I know you have a job to do when you're on the bench. Your job is to, you know, go through the facts and, and weigh the evidence and, and, and fairly, um, you know, give a ruling. As a judge, though, do these things stay with you? Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, when, it, when it's finished, uh, victim impact statements, I can say that it's hardly, probably isn't a judge in this country who hasn't had, uh, had some impact on it, because we're human beings. We have families. We live in the community, and uh, these these affect people. They got any any sentient beating has to respond to that and, and be aware of it. You just have to be careful in a, in a very professional way that we just. Uh, take that as a factor in the context in which it's given. Yeah, I think a lot of people just assume that the system's either stacked against them and or the people in it, whether it be the lawyers or the judges in these things, you know, that they are there to do a job and that's that. But I, I do know that, um, you know, when you speak to people after the fact, they do tend to take a lot of this home with them and reflect on it. And, and a judge usually, uh, I did it all the time, and I'm for sure most, almost all judges do it, when they deliver, deliver their sentence, they will make reference to the impact the crime has had on the person, and they'll go back to the victim impact statement. Really? So it has that much impact? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it's one of the factors, and you outline it and what the impact has, even, even minor offenses. Right. And so I, I, get, I, would, I would think, and certainly in a high-profile case, certainly like the MacArthur case and now what we're watching with Humboldt, when you know all eyes are watching you, I mean, they're the biggest cases in the country, uh, um, as a judge, certainly that would add extra pressure, correct? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you, you know, but you, you don't let that sway you one way that you're aware of it, and you're just very careful of what you say and how you say it. Yeah, and fully know that uh, yes. you'll be a part of history and remembered for it. Well, interesting look uh, from your point of, the point of view. I love it when judges retire because it gives us a chance to get a different perspective <laughs> on how it works. Yeah, we're not... We're not, we're not bound by the courtroom. <laughs> Anything said won't be then turned against us because we're not back in court. No, that's right. Well, Justice Otter, I appreciate you joining us. Thanks very much. No problem. Thank you. That is the Honorable, now retired, Justice Russell Otter uh, joining me today. I love those behind-the-scenes look. I think they're fascinating to get kind of a different perspective, certainly when this is what we are talking about these, uh, you know, today, these big justice issues where people want to know that justice is, in fact, being uh, not only protected, but delivered. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point here on Global News Radio.